This is In-Depth, N.H., of the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism. I'm Roger Wood. Sindiso Manisi Weeks, Assistant Professor in Public Policy of Excluded Populations, School for Global Inclusion and Social Development, University of Massachusetts, Boston. The latest news is the federal holiday uh, that has just been approved and signed by the president, a cause for celebration for all people, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, it is really wonderful news. I think um, a lot of people have been uh, wanting to see that come to fruition. And so it felt like a, a, a fulfillment of um, people's long struggles. You wrote a very good commentary, a couple of them actually, that appeared in the New Hampshire Business uh, Review, which I read. And um, it talked about um, the disadvantages that people of color have uh, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, so the piece was co-written with my husband, and I should actually give um, uh, a lot of credit to him because he was the lead author on the piece. And um, he really um, came to me with the idea of wanting to write something about um, essentially responding firstly to HB 544 um, and the you know argument that was being made by some of the uh, representatives um, in Concord saying that actually you know there there isn't a need for um, us to be talking about these issues um, because this isn't a problem and most um, sort of immediately what had animated, um, activated Dan Weeks, my husband, to um, want to write this piece was uh, the statement by the governor um, saying that um, systemic racism isn't a problem in New Hampshire. And so, um, you know, Dan was like, oh, I think that the governor is, is you know, wrong on this. Um, but more than that, you know, he realized that there actually wasn't a really good source where you could find all of these statistics pulled together. So, you know, you could find bits and pieces in different places, but you couldn't necessarily find all of it in the same place. And so um, really wanted to, um, you know, present a picture for people who maybe are sympathetic to the argument that yes, this is a problem, right, in the United States at large, but it's not a problem here in the Granite State. And so um, that was where the piece originated from. Interesting. I was reading the House bill, and um, it's got a lot of controversy. It's it's tied, as you know, to the budget. And right. it, it might get unraveled from the budget, and, and they're still wrangling over that. Uh, Correct. It's uh, yes. It's an incredible uh, situation uh, to have that on the floor, really. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if your listeners would be aware. Probably many of them are that you know the language of um, House Bill Five Forty Four actually is language that is almost cut and paste from um, an executive order that was um, adopted and, and signed by the prior president of the United States, um, which essentially was sort of defending what, uh, you know, was called patriotic history um, and taking a stance against um, any kind of teaching of issues around discrimination that 
make certain groups feel badly about, you know, their identities and their role in history. And um, it has come to be referred to by the shorthand that is, you know, um, that it's basically kind of advocating against like critical race theory informed mm -hmm. approach to, um, you know, the teaching of history and um, civics in the United States. However, of course, anybody who knows about critical race theory would um, respond very strongly to say that the bill does not actually speak, doesn't say anything really about critical race theory because it it clearly misunderstands what critical race theory is. Um, and I guess I would say that the most fundamental misunderstanding um, is that, you know, the people who adopt the former president's view that, you know, racism and sexism would stop being a problem if we just stopped talking about them are missing the fact that actually, you know, we're not talking about something that's just an interpersonal issue, right? And, um, you know, when they highlight and emphasize the fact that when you talk about racism in terms of the ways in which it, um, you know, systemically privileges certain groups of people, particularly white people and men, um, you know, then, uh, you know, you're making people feel badly about themselves and making these people feel badly about being white, you know, that that's a misunderstand fundamental misunderstanding of what's in, at issue, because the issue isn't so much about making people feel badly. And I don't think anybody wants to make anybody feel badly. Um, it's about the fact that there are endemic and persistent inequalities that, um, you know, are riddled throughout society um, whether or not the people who are working in those positions, you know, whether at government or in professional environments or, or in, you know, education spaces are themselves racist, right? Like the, the impacts of um, inequality are so baked into the system um, that they actually, um, you know, manifest no matter the intentions of the people who are, um, you know, administering whatever those policies and practices are. And so, you know, to focus on making certain people feel badly is to miss the point quite fundamentally, especially because, you know, the people who suffer from systemic racism and systemic sexism and, and all of the rest of the isms, you know, that fundamentally and systemically discriminate against people at a structural level, those people aren't just concerned about having hurt feelings when somebody says something racist against you. Those people are fundamentally concerned about the fact that, you know, the, the American dream is not available to people of certain demographics, um, almost regardless of their efforts. Um, and that is just as a function of their having a certain skin type or having certain, you know, um, uh, <laughs> genitalia associated with a particular sex, right? And so um, that is fundamentally contradictory to what America stands for and who America says that it is. And so um, that's the, the, key, the key issue at hand. You live in New Hampshire and you teach in Boston. So you see, I don't know, I think both sides of rural and, uh, and metropolitan life. I think I, I like to say that I have as well um, and, I, and I like to think that I'm not a racist and, and that I was taught at the age of 15 
uh, by meeting a person of color and, uh, and then going to university full of people with different colors, nationalities, then coming, then coming here, um, I guess without reflecting on myself, uh, you are in a primarily white state, aren't you? That is indeed correct. Yes, I think. Um, I mean, it's it's. I can share a little bit of my background. So mm. I'm originally from South Africa, and um, first moved, first visited New Hampshire in 2008 um, because my husband Dan Weeks, who is as he likes to say, a 12th generation Granite Stater, um, you know, he grew up in New Hampshire. Um, and he wanted to come back home. Um, and he and I had met in the UK in graduate school. And I, you know, I joked that I had never even heard of New Hampshire um, when I met him. And so, you know, to come to New Hampshire and, um, you know, for a while I would say to him, why couldn't you have been for Cal from California? At least I've heard of California, you know? Um, and so, you know, the thought of coming to New Hampshire, which is relatively small, relatively, um, uh, you know, homogenous and, um, uh, we would joke often actually that whenever I would leave, because for about three years, we were in a long distance relationship, um, that the population of people of color in New Hampshire would drop by like, you know, 33%. And so, you know, like I moved here in 2013, when we finally um, set down roots here, knowing very consciously that, you know, I was moving to a state that self identifies as um, predominantly a white state and is demographically a predominantly a white state, although, um, you know, a lot of New Hampshire's history of diversity, um, even though it exists and is very deep and goes a long way back, is, is just not, um, you know, highlighted. It's just not spoken about. It's not that it's not there. You know, New Hampshire, um, before it was, um, you know, Lily White, New Hampshire was the home of you know, thriving Native American populations, right? And those are considered today um, people of color. Um, and there are still some living um, Native American communities um, in the Granite State. Um, and then of course, New Hampshire actually was the site of slavery and indentured, serv indentured servitude. And so, you know, um, there is a long history of people of African descent and people of multiple different, um, you know, heritages um, living in New Hampshire. And so even though New Hampshire is still predominantly a white state, um, you know, it is also a very diverse state. Have you had an opportunity to visit the uh, African burying ground in Portsmouth? Indeed, actually, we were there on Saturday for the Juneteenth celebration. They had a wonderful, um, you know, uh, sort of ceremony where they remembered uh, the um, bodies of the people who were buried there, um, you know, the African people mm -hmm. who were buried there, and then um, also had some wonderful festivities with um, dancing and drumming and what have you. And I followed the building of that and uh, the in very impressive cost of doing that. And if I may say, and as an observation, it wasn't just people of color that contributed to that large fund. 
it was white people as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's one of the cool things too about um, what the Black Heritage Trail does is, um, you know, that organization, in fact, many of the volunteers who were there and hosting and facilitating the proceedings on Saturday are people of European descent. And so um, I don't think that these issues are necessarily racialized issues in the sense that I think there are um, people of, you know, um, uh, both European and African and, um, you know, indigenous and Asian um, and other identities, um, uh, at least whose descent, who are descendants um, from those places who are engaged in these conversations on both sides. And um, there are certainly a lot of um, granite staters who, you know, would be described as white um, or would even self-describe as white um, who are opposed to, um, you know, HB 544, which is now part of, you know, House Bill 2, which yeah. is the budget, um, because they recognize that it's actually really important for all of our kids to learn these truths about our history and that you can't solve a problem if you sweep it under the rug. The first thing that you learn in whatever, you know, course or, um, you know, therapy or counseling or whatever process you go through about resolving issues is that the first thing you have to overcome is denial, right? You have to accept it and acknowledge it. Um, in reverse order, actually acknowledge and accept it. Um, and, and only then can you actually re really address that. And I think a lot of people recognize that, people even who are of European descent. I was reading the transcript of a Washington Post uh, podcast and it uh, was said, I forget the name of it, I'm sorry, The New Normal, I think, um, and that uh, we have white blame, we should, well, blame ourselves, but okay, I, I find it hard to blame myself because I don't perceive that there was anybody in, in my forebears that were slave owners or slave traders. I might be wrong though. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an important question that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, you know, what I have found helpful in these conversations is to not so much focus on blame, because I think that um, that can be a, an obstacle. It can um, stand in the way of having productive conversations and moving forward. Um, I rather want to start, start with the data, right? And um, agree on the fact that there is a problem, that we both are seeing the same problem, right? And, um, a problem, as I would very briefly articulate it, which is what we summarized in the article, is that um, the, you know, ways in which society is structured have the unfortunate and distressing and unequal um, effects of making white people the beneficiaries of, um, the system as it stands and people of color to different degrees, right? Depending on how, how black they are or how removed they are from whiteness, mm. um, uh, their life chances and um, access to, you know, you name it, education, health, um, you know, prosperity, um, their access and their benefit from, from those opportunities are 
proportionate with the amount of whiteness or blackness in their skin, right? And then if you look at sexism, similarly so. And so I think it's not helpful to talk about blame. It's more helpful to say, so we are both observing a phenomenon where whether or not the people who, you know, are in power are, um, you know, deliberately doing this, and I'm more than happy to, to um, attribute a generous view, um, you know, give a charitable perspective that says that none of them are intending to do harm, right? Yet even so, harm continues to occur. Mm. So how do we work together to overcome that harm, recognizing that there are some people who are um, consistently benefiting as contrasted with some people who are more consistently um, being harmed and disadvantaged by the system as it stands. And so, um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that I think gets lost in the conversation often is that even though we are talking about disparate harm, right, the system of racism and sexism definitely does more harm to Black people um, you know, Black and Indigenous and people of color, depending on how far removed they are from whiteness, right, um, and, and does more benefit and more um, substantially benefits white people or people who are of European descent, right. Um, however, that's not the same as saying that the system is good for white people, right? Because what often gets lost is that racism harms everybody, right? Like, you know, there, there are fascinating studies that have been done about the ways in which, um, you know, white people themselves, if they are informed by racist beliefs, right, actually vote in ways that are negative for their own purposes, right? They, they for instance, they vote against um, investment in public infrastructure that would actually be beneficial to everybody, not just Black people, not just immigrants, right? And so th that is a form of harm for themselves. Or, you know, even in the hearings around HB 544, HB 2, right, um, here in New Hampshire, one of the most poignant stories I heard in the testimonies was a doctor who um, I believe works for Dartmouth-Hitchcock, right, um, uh, and he said, you know, one of the ways in which he has seen racism actually really do harm to European people of European descent is that he, as a doctor of Asian descent, right, he um, serves a, a, a population up in the, the in Coos County where there isn't very much um, medical access. And yet sometimes people who literally have nowhere else to go will say, no, I don't want to be seen by you because you are a person of color. Is that not a form of harm for that person who is standing before an Indian doctor and yet rejects the services that could be life preserving for them because they hold to a racist view of the world, right? Um, that's like the most immediate example of how racism harms everybody, even white people. And so I think it's really important for us to, to not focus on, um, you know, who's guilty and who's not, because frankly, at the end of the day, and this is what critical race theory, I think is really good at articulating is that because the system is rigged, so as to be um, to produce race, disparate 
effects based on race, racial, um, you know, classification, um, everybody is complicit in racism. So in a sense, we're all guilty, right? We are all guilty for contributing to a system that um, perpetuates racism and perpetuates sexism. Um, however, if we step away from focusing on that, we can have more productive conversations by talking about the fact that we have an opportunity to collaborate to ensure maximal advantage for everybody. And we do that by you know, working together to eliminate all of those um, barriers, those artificial barriers that are put in place by things like racism and sexism. As an educator, how would you like to see American history taught differently? Oh, wow. You know, one of the um, first books that I read uh, on American history that I found really compelling was Lies My Teacher Told Me. And it's a book about um, the like it sort of is um, told around certain sort of pivotal moments in American history that are sort of canonical, right? Like everybody kind of knows about them and thinks about them in a very particular way um, because of how they've been taught. But actually those stories are really incomplete and those stories are in many ways um, very um, misleading, deceptive. Um, and so for instance, one is the story of Christopher Columbus discovering America, right? I mean, um, there are cities and um, I think some states even at this point that have now um, renamed Columbus Day um, Indigenous Peoples Day because of the fact that um, there's an awareness that this idea of talking about Columbus as having discovered America is, is, is problematic because it essentially sort of eliminates the indigenous people from the narrative of America's um, existence and formation. Um, but also the, it, it, it doesn't, um, you know, recognize the fact that there had been Asian explorers who had actually come to America before. There had been African explorers who had come to America before, Christopher, Christopher Columbus, right? It takes one European man and makes him the um, epitome of the discovery and formation of this nation, right? And, and so I would love to see, you know, history taught in ways that are just more complex, right? In ways that just are, are much less simplistic, right? We, we like the story of like, you know, the single hero or heroine, it's mostly hero, but sometimes it's heroine, right? Um, and the story of like this one explorer and, and, you know, enterprising individual who, you know, defies all the odds. But the reality is that all of us we live in a world that's 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 complicated, right? Where no individual is both good and bad, right? And 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 so you know, you know, I would love to see history taught in ways that help us as um, individuals and as a society to live with the tensions and ambiguities and contradictions of what life as human beings actually encompasses by matter of necessity. Um, and, you know, I would apply that not just to like, you know, the big heroines such as, you know, Christopher Columbus, who's an easy sort of scapegoat, but for instance, Martin Luther King too, right? Who is a black hero who many of us um, as people of color revere and, and, and think is wonderful when, you know, our white brothers and sisters um, celebrate him and, you know, draw quotes from him or whatever. But 
often we talk about him in ways that sort of um, like flatten his 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 character, flatten his um, his humanity, right? Because he actually was a very complicated person, right? <laughs> so um, some of what he said was, um, you know, very very progressive and welcome, but some of it was contra you know, controversial even in in at his time, like in his time, and some of his behavior, right, was contradictory to some of what he um, subscribed to as being. Uh, you know, his beliefs and values. And, and, you know, I think it's important for us to teach our children a version of history that allows them to see that they have permission to be both great and flawed at the same time. And that that is actually the story of all heroes is that they wrestle with their inner demons and um, and that they contribute to history in complicated ways. And that, you know, decades or centuries later, people will come back and question what they did, which at the time that they did it may have been the stuff of heroes, but now is actually looked back on. And, and, and you know, even when some people say he was just a, a, a man of his time, some people say, no, actually, there were people who were against slavery at his time. Um, and so it's actually not okay to say Christopher Columbus or, um, you know, uh, um, uh, who's a good example, um, Jefferson, right? Um, or even Washington was just a man of his time, right? Because even at that time, there were voices that were loudly saying slavery is wrong. And so, you know, it's just, it's important for us to, to bring together these nuances and these complexities and contradictions um, and contestations so that our children grow up to understand um, what it means to be human and what it means to, um, you know, contribute to society that's made up of complex beings and complex histories. What about you? Do you think that uh, constructive change can happen? I think constructive change can happen. And, you know, I'm so encouraged by the fact that I think constructive change already is happening. I mean, you know, George Floyd's murder um, was a watershed. It really was. I think for so many of us who are people of color, it was just devastating. But I think also for a lot of our brothers and sisters who are people of European descent, it was also um, devastating. It, it, it essentially took the scales off of people's eyes and they saw more clearly for the first time that systemic racism isn't you know, it isn't benign, right? It, in the words of Ta-Nehisi quotes, we we talk about racism um, in in sort of very um, uh, in ways that are have been sort of um, are devoid of the horror of what it actually represents. And he says we need to to talk about racism as something that um, is the gnashing of of teeth the breaking of bones, the like shedding of blood, right? Because that's what racism looks like. And I think that's what the George Floyd moment was, is a recognition of the fact that racism isn't benign. It is, you know, the, the taking of life um, in very brutal and painful ways. And as I said earlier in our discussion, I think that, um, you know, as so much research and scholarship and teaching tells us, we start to see change when we 
start by acknowledging that there is a problem and you know accepting it and recognizing it and 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 agreeing to 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 work towards um, something better. And I think that that's the moment we're in. Um, you know, some people have said that we're in, you know, a moment somewhat like the civil rights um, movement, um, you know, period. Um, I don't know if I would be that bold um, as to say that, but I do think that we are seeing, a, we are in a moment of tectonic shift. And that makes me hopeful. I don't think that we are going to see all of the change that we wanna see. Statistically, actually, they say that if America keeps going at the rate that it's going right now, um, it will close the um, racial inequality gap um, in 200 and I think 63 years, roughly. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that if nothing else, we won't be going backwards and we will close the gap in 263 years. However, if, I am also hopeful that if, you know, people keep advocating and agitating and, um, you know, working together as we're seeing happening in this moment in history, we might actually even be able to have that or, you know, um, achieve those goals in a quarter of the time. Um, so I am hopeful. It probably won't happen in my lifetime, but, um, I am hopeful that we will see some movement and some change. Sandiso Minisi Weeks, educator, University of Massachusetts, Boston, author, and New Hampshire resident. In-depth NH of the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism welcomes support from grants, corporations, businesses, and individuals. I'm Roger Wood.